If you remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus, we're going to be starting a series in the book of Titus. I know we've been marching through the book of Luke for quite a while now. Every once in a while we take a break. Uh, we look at some portion of the Old Testament, we look at some portion of the New Testament, and so for the next several weeks we're going to go through the, the book of Titus uh, to read this letter of Paul uh, to his friend Titus. So we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. So Titus 1, verses 1 through 4, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. As you do, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. I have a good friend by the name of Mark. He is, uh, well, he was the best man in my wedding. Um, he is currently a church planter in North Carolina, in the Raleigh-Durham area. His wife is from there. Uh, they are big Duke fans, and so they're in the right place. Uh, but he is planning a church there uh, with the Christian Reformed Church, uh, the denomination he is a part of. And we got to speak this past week on Skype. It's been a while since I've actually seen him, you know, as much as you can see, you know, on Skype. Um, and uh, we just had a great conversation, getting caught up on what is going on, and, and um, uh, church planting can be a difficult thing. And uh, so I asked him, uh, uh, what was the best thing uh, that he did in terms of his church planting? And he said the best, uh, the best decision he ever made uh, with church planting was to find himself a good coach. He has a man who uh, coaches him, who is a mentor to him. Uh, in his church planting, who can ask him any question, uh, who can give him honest, constructive criticism, um, and who can encourage him on what he has done. Uh, he is a man who has uh, planted churches before, and so he is a great asset to Mark. Uh, one of the best things that I have here, an asset, is someone who also mentors me. Um, I'm sure you guys can know who that is. I don't want to he doesn't like his horn to be tooted, but yes, Steve Sanford uh, is a great asset to me here. Uh, the first year I was here, we met, I think it was every Friday morning, uh, for breakfast to just um, speak into me his wisdom that he has, uh, that God has given to him over years and years of ministry. And that has been a huge asset to me uh, as pastor uh, of Trinity. Um, Paul 
pours himself into Titus. And we're going to see that here in the, as we go through this, this letter of Paul to Titus. There's a couple of men that Paul really poured himself into. Titus being one of them, Timothy being another. Uh, as Paul went out on his missionary journeys, uh, there were several people that would travel with him. As he began on the first missionary journey that he went out, um, he was Saul at that point. And uh, the journey that he went on, uh, the, the Bible tells us that Barnabas and Saul were sent. Uh, Saul's name quickly changes to Paul, and soon after there, we don't hear about someone and Paul. We hear about Paul and someone else. Uh, Paul's gifts in church planting and evangelism are realized, and, um, and he becomes uh, the front runner in these duos uh, where they are going out and planting churches. Uh, he goes out with people the likes of Silas, of Timothy, of Priscilla and Aquila, of Silvanus, and of course, Titus, who we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. So what do we know about Titus? Well, if you read the book of Acts, you will not see Titus's name mentioned once. So what we can glean from this is Paul and Titus probably traveled together after the book of Acts was written. We know of Titus from three letters of Paul, from 2 Corinthians, from Galatians, and from 2 Timothy. Paul mentions Titus in each of these letters. Uh, we do know that Titus was an uncircumcised Greek. Uh, we know that intimate detail because Paul tells so in Galatians. Um, he had Timothy circumcised, but he did not have Titus circumcised, uh, despite him being a Greek. Um, despite their different cultural backgrounds, uh, Paul and Titus shared a very unique and a very strong bond with one another. Um, each time that Paul mentions Titus in these letters, he does so with a, with a deep fondness towards him. Um, similar to, I would say, like a war veteran talks about their combat brothers. This is the intimacy that he, he approaches with Titus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes a situation where he felt the Holy Spirit calling him to an area, calling him to the city of Troas. But when he got there, he was disappointed. He said that his spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul and Titus had a very intimate relationship with each other. Uh, they traveled together at some point in Paul's life, probably following his imprisonment that we read about at the end of Acts. And at some point on their journey, they landed on the island of Crete. So if you know anything about the island of Crete, it's in the Mediterranean Sea. It's near Greece. Uh, this was the island where Paul spent some time on his way to Rome. This is the, the trip we read about in the book of Acts, where they left Crete, and as they did, they experienced a, a northeaster, this uh, violent and quick storm that came up. Uh, they uh, were driven about the Mediterranean Sea, landed on the island of Malta, and were shipwrecked there. Uh, Crete is the, the island that they left from. <clears throat> and apparently, the island of Crete had a terrible reputation. I mean, it was awful. Uh, in, uh, we're going to see in Titus 1, verse 12, it says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And this is the testimony of one of their own prophets, 
So this is what their own are saying about themselves. Imagine what the outside world is saying about the island of Crete. They do not have a good reputation. So, uh, in typical Paul fashion, this is what he does. He goes to an area, he evangelizes the Jews, and when and if the Jews reject him, he goes to the Gentiles, and he plants a church. And when he plants a church there, he moves on, and he leaves men in place to lead that church. Paul is very gifted as an evangelist and as a church planter. This is God's will for him. So, he leaves the others to grow the churches, making sure that they are running properly, that the gospel is being clearly preached. And this is a situation we have here on the island of Crete with Titus. Paul helped him plant the church, and then he moved on so that he could plant more churches. As Paul moves on, he writes a letter back to Titus to encourage him, to strengthen him in the work that is going on there, and to make sure that the gospel is being clearly proclaimed there on Crete. Um, This is also what we call one of the pastoral epistles. And this is important because there's three pastoral epistles. We have 1 and 2 Timothy, and we have Titus. These are epistles or letters that Paul writes not to churches like the Ephesians or Romans or Galatians or Corinthians, um, but he writes this to individuals, to young pastors, um, to encourage them and to strengthen them in their calling. Uh, Because the pastoral epistles are are letters from Paul to young pastors, I really appreciate them, And, um, and you could probably understand why. However, the pastoral epistles are not only for those who are standing behind the pulpit as I am this morning, they're for all of us. They're for the entire church. They're for the church in general. Because Paul demonstrates in Titus how the gospel affects all of life, including the church and its membership. So as we look at this book of Titus, what are we going to be seeing over these next several weeks? Well, Paul left Titus on Crete so that, in verse 5 of chapter 1, says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul wrote this so that there would be order in the church. But what, is, what does that mean? What does it mean that you, that you put what remained into order? And as we read through Titus, we'll see that it means appointing the proper leaders who can guard against false doctrine, something that's very important in the church, uh, even as we are going to be doing that soon uh, on the 30th as we uh, meet together to elect deacon. It also means the proper passage of wisdom from one generation to the next to ensure that godliness and the gospel is passed down properly. And as we'll see from the theme of Titus, um, Paul keeps coming back to one central theme, and that is the gospel. And it's summarized in Titus 2, verses 11 through 13 where Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what Paul clearly demonstrates in this letter is that God's grace 
shown to us through salvation, is accomplished through the death of Christ, and it compels us to godly living. So that's why the title for the sermon this morning is Grace Compels Godliness. Grace Compels Godliness. So whenever we hear the word good works, or the words, excuse me, good works, um, as Reformed Christians, alarm bells start ringing in our minds. Good works. Uh, We've been trained over the past 500 years to hear good works and to think bad. Good works, bad. Because we're saved by grace through faith, not according to the works that we do. Yet Paul uses this term, good works, six times in this letter. In fact, as he closes the letter, Paul emphatically commands Titus, I want you to insist on on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And these things are excellent and profitable for people. So in a nutshell, what Titus is going to teach us is that how we live as Christians actually matters. That good works are an important part of the Christian life. That your actions as a leader in the church matter. In fact, your actions qualify you or disqualify you for leadership. That your actions reveal whether or not you believe the true gospel or the false gospel that was being proclaimed on the island of Crete. Your actions are an example for the next generation because actions, as they say, speak louder than words. In fact, your actions speak volumes about the gospel because they are a visible display of God's grace that he has poured out through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we look at verses 1 through 4 this morning, we're going to look at this with the the context of, of the theme of Titus, that grace compels godliness. So as Paul typically does in the beginning of letters, um, he identifies himself. Uh, Often he even describes himself. Sometimes he describes himself in great length like he does here in Titus. Sometimes he just gives his name, uh, like in Thessalonians where he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Um, But here he gives a description of himself and of his calling, and he gives a greeting of peace as well. Uh, Paul describes himself as a doulos of God. Now, uh, most translations uh, would say servant. You probably have a footnote there that would also say or slave or bond servant. Um, When Paul describes himself as a doulos of God, Paul considers himself to be a slave of God, that he has committed himself to the Lord. Uh, Before his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul realized that he was a slave to sin. But as he describes in Romans 6, the gospel set him free from slavery to sin. And instead of being a slave to sin, he was now a slave to righteousness. In fact, he was a slave to God. And this is truth, that gospel sets us free from sin. But it doesn't set us free to be completely independent, that we're free to be ourselves. Instead, we have a new master. Instead of being sin, our master is now the Lord. Paul knew that he belonged, body and soul, in life and in death, to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So not only is Paul a doulos of God, 
but he describes himself as an apostolos of Jesus Christ, meaning a special messenger or one who is sent out from Jesus. Paul experienced the dramatic life change on the road to Damascus when Christ revealed himself to Paul. And then he believed the gospel, and in turn he became a witness to the power of the gospel in his life. So Paul became a slave of God, an apostle of Christ, and he has called this for a reason, for a particular purpose, as he describes here in verse 1. He says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul realizes that he has a singular purpose to his life, so that the elect might come to faith, that they might know the truth. So Paul links faith and knowledge together, and this is really key. He links these two things. In fact, these concepts, they go hand in hand with each other, faith and knowledge. Because faith in Christ means believing the truth about Christ. In other words, you can't have faith in Christ without knowledge of the truth of Christ. Faith in Christ is the acknowledgement that Christ is truth. It's believing the claims of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6, where Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So there is a link here between faith and knowledge of the truth. That's very important. Um, I've been listening to the book recently, uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Some of you may know that book. Um, it's an autobiographical autobiographical story uh, of the wife of a pastor in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. There are many strands of Presbyterianism, um, and uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church is not too different uh, from the PCA. It's a conservative um, Presbyterian denomination. And uh, through a series of people and various circumstances, the Holy Spirit converted Rosaria and brought her to faith in Christ in her 30s. Uh, she was a tenured professor of English at the time at Syracuse University in New York. Uh, she had an extensive network of friends and uh, very deeply involved in a community that was very welcoming and accepting to her. Uh, one of her friends began asking her what was going on in her life. She noticed a change in Rosaria. Uh, she was, and Rosaria responded by saying that she was starting to believe that Jesus might actually be real. She was starting to believe that what he actually did was, or, or that he actually did live, that he actually did die, that he actually was raised again. She was beginning to have faith in the truth. And this came as a shock to her friend and to the rest of her community uh, because most of her friends were like her. They were homosexual or transgender. 
and for them to have someone who is close to them to reject their lifestyle and turn their faith over to Christ was a huge blow. But as Rosaria gained this knowledge of the truth, she came to faith in Christ. Faith and knowledge of the truth go hand in hand. Because Christianity is true. Jesus is real. He lived in history. He is not a fairy tale. He is not an ancient myth. He lived and he breathed. He walked this earth for 33 years. He suffered and he died and he rose again. All of it is true. It is reality. It is not make-believe. And As Paul tells us here in these first four verses, God has revealed this truth to us in his word. As Paul says in verse 3, God at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which what I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This knowledge of the truth and the faith in Christ comes to us through God's holy word and through the preaching of it. So yes, that means that what we are doing right now has vital importance for our faith. But preaching is not only specific, like what we're doing right now, it's also general. Because we know that we preach with our lives, with our words, and with our actions. This call is for all of us. Paul says that this faith and this knowledge leads to something. It leads to hope. Faith in Christ and knowledge of the truth leads to an eternal hope. You could be in the worst of situations that might even scare you to death. But because of faith and knowledge of the truth, we have hope. And with this hope, you know that everything is going to be uh, okay in the end. That everything will be made right. Uh, Last night, Stephanie and I listened to a brief sermon from Matt Chandler, who is a pastor at a church in Texas, uh, a few years ago, Matt was diagnosed uh, with brain cancer. On Thanksgiving morning, he had a grand mal seizure in front of his children um, and had uh, emergency surgery that following week where they removed um, part of this tumor from his brain, followed by chemotherapy and radiation. After his diagnosis, his surgery, the chemo, the radiation, Matt is able to speak very clearly to the realities of suffering. And he suffered publicly in front of his church because he wanted to demonstrate um, the grace of God through suffering. He was able to suffer well through this ordeal because of the hope that he had in his sovereign God. We have hope because we believe the truth that we have a Savior our Lord Jesus Christ, that he offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sins and to defeat all of his and our enemies, as the Catechism tells us. God raised him from the dead. He's returning to earth to set up his kingdom here, and it will be a kingdom that will never end. We can endure suffering in this life because we know that it's only temporary. One day it will end. And God is using our suffering to draw us closer to Him. So not only does our faith and knowledge of the gospel lead to hope, 
But Paul tells us that it also accords with godliness. And we're going to finish with this phrase here, accords to godliness. Because this is the theme that Paul draws out in the rest of his letter to Titus. It's a theme that Peter spoke of in one of his letters as well. I want to read 2 Peter 1, verses 5-8. through 8. Peter writes, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness, brother, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and knowledge affect how we live. Now, the order of faith and godliness is very important. This is extremely important. When we don't know what our status is before a great and a powerful God, we are very fearful. Without knowledge of where we stand, any attempt at godliness before God is simply manipulation. What do I mean by that? What we do is that we perform our good works before God in order to improve our status before Him. When we are performing admirably, our stock with God goes up. When we are behaving poorly, our stock goes down. Godliness at that point or doing good works when we don't know how we stand before God becomes something that's that's self-seeking. Because we're not seeking God's glory, we're seeking for our own glory. Because we're worried about our own standing before God. It's a little bit like dating. If you can bear with me on this analogy. So dating is a stage where you're never, fairly, never fully certain where you stand with the other person. You constantly wonder what the other person is thinking or what they're feeling. You perform acts of kindness for, the, uh, for each other so that you can gain each other's favor. Uh, you put your best foot forward. Um, and uh, if, you, if you continue in the relationship, um, and if you no longer appreciate the way that the other person is acting, then you have the opportunity to break off the relationship. But our relationship with God is not like one of dating. Instead, it's one like marriage. Because when you get married, you stand in front of your family and your friends. You promise to love one another until death do us part. How you you feel about the other person is revealed. You love each other. You perform acts of kindness towards each other, knowing exactly where you stand with the other person. When God rescues us out of darkness and into light through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. The Catechism tells us that we have the privilege of justification, adoption, and sanctification. In other words, we know where we stand before God because in our justification, Christ's perfect record is imputed to us. It becomes ours. In adoption, we become part of God's family. We are His And in sanctification, we are being made more and more into the image of Christ, and we're enabled more to die to sin and live unto righteousness. So through these things, we know where we stand before God. He loves us, and He cares for us. 
not based on what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. And the love that he has for us in Christ never fades. And this knowledge of his love for us, this free gift of grace, compels us then to live for him. Now, the analogy of marriage isn't exactly perfect. Unfortunately, we break our promises. But the truth of the gospel is that God never breaks his promises. So as we study Titus over the next several weeks, Paul's going to draw out this theme of godliness in various ways, and it's going to be challenging to us. Uh, Titus is a very challenging book. But godliness and good works matter in the Christian life. In fact, God has prepared us for good works. As Reformed Christians, we love Ephesians 2, 8-10, through where it says, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So the questions we need to be asking ourselves this morning and as we go through Titus is, do we have a knowledge of the truth? Do we know that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe, yet at the same time that we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope? And if so, then God is calling us to live in such a way that displays the reality of this truth. Because if we truly believe the truth of the gospel, then our lives will be forever changed. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, you have poured out your grace on us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we know that this is true that Christ lived, that He died, that He rose again, that He ascended into heaven, and that He is coming back again. And we long for that day, Lord. I pray that You would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe this truth, that knowledge and belief would go hand in hand in our lives. And because of this, Lord, that our lives would be forever changed. Father, I pray that we would live godly lives, that we would do the good works that you have prepared in advance for us, not to gain status before you, but because we already have status before you, not to gain your love, Father, but because we know and we experience and we can bask in the love that you have for us. We thank you and we praise you for this great love. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.